Hi, I'm Laura Bischoff with the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome back to another special episode of Ohio Politics Explained. Our guest is retired FBI Special Agent Jeff Williams. He supervised the Ohio Public Corruption Team in Columbus as well as the House Bill 6 case. In the last episode, Williams talked about his career investigating public corruption and arresting Larry Householder. If you missed it, circle back to catch that discussion. In this episode, Williams talks about the big news splash they knew that the Householder arrest would make and how self-described super lobbyist Neil Clark fit into the case. And these arrests were happening kind of just a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic. Were there any precautions or special steps you had to take because of that? Yes. And it was a challenging time for, you know, not just for us with the investigation, but I think for, for everyone dealing with, you know, what restrictions were in place and what policies were in place that we needed to abide by. You know, it was interesting to me that the feds decided to issue a very, very lengthy, detailed criminal complaint, 80 pages, authored by um, Special Agent Blaine Wetzel. I had not seen that before. Usually, you know, an indictment will come down, it'll be less detailed, a little bit more legalese. But this seemed to paint like a whole narrative and, and really put out a lot of allegations. What was the thinking on that? Well, I think there was a lot that went into it, you know, in conjunction with the United States Attorney's Office and with the lead federal prosecutor, Emily Glatfelder. There's as you say, multiple ways in which you can charge a case. And I think it was very purposeful what we did and, and why the United States Attorney's Office and, and Emily and, and, and Blaine and the team chose to go the route that we did. And again, it was for a number of reasons, but most of them were interrelated. And that is, we are charging the sitting speaker of the Ohio General Assembly on a matter that isn't something that was seven years ago or eight years ago. It was legislation that had just passed and and was a books on the law. And due to the fact of really all the factors that I've already talked about, the size of the bribe, the nature of the alleged bribe payers being with a Fortune 500 company, the legislation and how it impacted millions of Ohio voters, and the size of the bailout of that was in effect uh, due to the legislation, all of those issues, we wanted to get that out into the public domain. We didn't want just a stripped down indictment with legalese where then people would question what was the case really about and what was the strength of the evidence. We felt very confident in the investigation and we felt very confident in the evidence that we had collected and that it was overwhelming. And that shows through in the complaint. And that is that was the purpose of it, to not only notify the defendants and put them on notice as to the strength of our case, but also to let the public know and really lay it out for them to see why we went to the extraordinary steps that we did in arresting the, the sitting speaker of the Ohio General Assembly. It's almost like you had to make your case to the public, show your cards. Well, I know that the most important thing, obviously, is is the integrity investigation and ultimately presenting it to a jury, which happened in this case. But part and parcel of it is also is uh, there is a public interest in this. Uh, there is, you know, we anticipated there would be press like yourself and, and many others covering this story. And there would be questions uh, and that the public would have questions about the nature of the allegations and we just felt it was better to put more out there in the form of the, the complaint in the statement of facts than, than an indictment. 
Is there any special approval that either the FBI or Department of Justice needs to get before arresting one of the three most powerful people in Ohio politics? Like, does the attorney general have to know? I don't think, and I think Dave DeVillers or or others, maybe uh, the former U.S. attorney have, have spoken to this. I'm not aware of like a specific requirement, but clearly I can speak more about the FBI, our executive management, and clearly folks back at headquarters in the public corruption unit there that that coordinates national public corruption matters. They were well aware of the investigation and what was going to be happening on that day. You know, in in the trial, it came out that the case was officially open in May of 2019 when State Representative Dave Greenspan called the FBI to say that he felt he was getting unusual pressure on House Bill 6. That's according to Special Agent Blaine Wetzel's testimony. But the FBI had undercover agents. They had recordings of Neil Clark, a lobbyist, self-described super lobbyist. They had hired him to be their lobbyist for this undercover operation involving a hotel. They were they were posing as real estate developers interested in a hotel with a sports book, and they were advised to hire Neil Clark as the as their lobbyist. And then Clark ended up introducing the undercovers to Larry Householder in a lengthy dinner in Columbus at the Aubergine. But you know, it what struck me as interesting is that Neil Clark was a common thread um, through some of the other cases as well. Like he he represented. I know the FBI issued subpoenas on the Electronic Classroom of Tomorrow. That was the online charter school that's that closed its doors, its virtual doors, and um, the payday lending industry and the investigation in that thread. He was a he was a lobbyist for the for the industry, and then he you know he worked with Householder on House Bill Six. So. How key was it that Neil Clark was involved in all this stuff? Like, did one thing lead to another thing? Did the case open? Did the, all these cases kind of overlap in some way? Or, Without a doubt, Neil Clark was someone that we were familiar with for all the reasons that you mentioned and his involvement in other investigations where there are allegations of criminal activity. Where we were fortuitous in this particular situation was... Again, there happened to be an investigation being run by agents in Cincinnati, an investigation that at the end of the day has been very successful. They convicted three members of uh, the city council in Cincinnati. And it was during the course of that investigation that there were wiretaps. And one of the phones that uh, we sought to have a wiretap on and, and received judicial approval was Neil Clark's phone. And again, that at the time, had nothing to do with the work that the agents were doing up in Columbus. It was specifically germane to the work that the agents were doing down in Cincinnati. But that then transitioned into the agents in Cincinnati wanting to to utilize undercover agents to further their investigation down there. And as you say, it's it's correct. We we really just followed the evidence and followed the leads and the introductions and the undercovers were told that they needed to to meet and retain Neil Clark, that he was somebody that if the they wanted to advance their business interest in uh, sports betting in Ohio, which at the time was was not legal, it had been debated in the General Assembly that they needed to retain Neil Clark because he would help them in their efforts. And that's what happened. And ultimately, that was it was integral to the investigation because of Clark's relationship, specific relationship with 
householder and how that relationship over the past couple of years had developed with, in his own words, and, and many others, Matt Borges used these words, that Neil Clark was the proxy for Larry Householder. So the ability of the FBI to introduce undercovers and capture recorded statements with Neil Clark and then ultimately Larry Householder and to capture those conversations that Neil Clark had on his telephone was uh, extremely important in the investigation. Why did the FBI tap Householder's phone, though? Can't get into all of that, but there were, there were, there were reasons why we did what we did, and we'll leave it at that. Did you read Neil Clark's book? I have read portions of Neil Clark's book. I, what did you think? It's lengthy, and it's his story. And, you know, I was, uh, I was just paying particular interest to the, the what are amount to only a couple of chapters where he talks about his interactions with the Department of Justice and the FBI and the undercovers. And then his very short section where he talks about his involvement in House Bill 6, I sort of skimmed the rest of it. I think he said, I don't know if he said it in the book or if he said it to the media before he, before he died, that he knew that the, the guys posing as his clients were FBI undercover agents. Do you buy that? I don't buy that. I've been a part of investigations, unfortunately, where an undercover has been made and, and identified. And the reaction in those investigations was not that the co-conspirator or the subject continued to engage the undercovers and talk about criminal activity. In those particular situations, the bad guys never met with the undercovers again. And so it's, uh, it, it just doesn't follow really common sense that if, if, you, if you thought or knew that business person, someone purporting to be a business person is actually an undercover FBI agent, that you would continue to meet with them and talk on tape and talk about your involvement in criminal activity and implicate other co-conspirators. How do you decide how much credibility to give to Neil Clark's conversations? Clark, who died in um, March of 2021, was known on Cap Square for telling some tall tales occasionally. So how do you kind of sort out what is bragging and what is useful to your case? I think one of the, the, the important things is, is like under what context are statements being made. So it's one thing after the fact to say things in a book. And in the same breath, it's, it's also it's something don't like during our proffer meeting with him, which he references in the book extensively to say things. And, but that is different than when you don't know that someone is listening. So anytime someone talks to us, whether it's Neil Clark or anyone else, especially maybe somebody like Neil Clark, who has sort of a reputation, like you said, Jesse, we would view what they say um, with a healthy dose of skepticism. And we would want to verify that information and corroborate it through other means. But it's a little bit different when you're having conversations on the phone or in person and you don't know that they're being recorded. That is when time and time again... Uh, sort of the true intentions and the true words come out of someone's mouth because they don't think anyone is listening. Why do you think uh, Neil Clark was wearing a Mike DeWine for governor t-shirt when he died by suicide? Well, it's speculation. I mean, it, you know, obviously that whole situation is very tragic, you know, for all involved, a wife and, and children and friends and family members who loved him. And, and so it's a, it's a tragic situation. But I think, you know, if you read his book and, you know, some of the comments he made to us, Many of us have speculated about this, but we, we kind of come to the same conclusion that it appears to be a shot at Mike DeWine. He makes reference in his book about how much dark money that, that DeWine received and other things that he has said and you know that 
that's obviously there could be many reasons and we don't pretend to know what was going on inside Neil Clark's head, but that appears to be sort of the message he was sending. 